All right, at this time, we're going to have our sermon brought to us today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, the message entitled, The Wisdom from Above. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here, as it always is, on a beautiful Sabbath day, but it's a, an especially blessed day with our youth day today, and so scripture I wanted to bring to everybody today that just kind of came to my mind. There's this concept in the biblical narrative as we read it, and it's this concept we've probably referred to before, but it's this idea of from generation to generation. When we read Psalms, 40, 100, the 145th Psalm, for example, verse 4, we read, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And so we have this responsibility, right, to, from generation to generation, to pass on the mighty acts of God, the ways of God, the precepts of God, the reality of this kingdom that's coming to this earth. And so I just wanted to start with that today because today I'm going to talk about this idea of wisdom. And we know as we are Christians, we need wisdom, right? We all do. Whether we're young, especially when we're young, because we think we have it all figured out sometimes when we're young, but sometimes that doesn't go away even as we grow older, but maybe we just realize as we get a little bit older that we don't really have it all figured out. We need wisdom in this life. We need wisdom in making the right decisions in life. We know that as we grow up, we're young, we go through different phases. There's a lot of firsts, right? First time you go to school, first time you, you, know, you graduate, first job that you have, first time you might have a relationship with someone. We need discernment in all of the various crossroads that life brings us and the wisdom, of course, and understanding God's will for our life. I just kind of wrote down some characteristics of wisdom as I was thinking about this idea. If you were to look at the English dictionary, the word wisdom, according to dictionary.com, means the quality or state of being wise. Knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with just judgment as to actions. And some different concepts that I think sometimes when I think of the idea of wisdom is patience discernment I already kind of mentioned that the ability to kind of make a decision the best decision humility cautiousness self-control and the ability I think to be objective the ability not to just rely on self the subjective perceptions that we as human beings so often have but to be objective so the question I have for us today, where does our wisdom come from? Where does our wisdom come from? From an early age, most of us probably learn most of the things that we know from our parents, right? From our family. And many of us have been blessed with family members, with mothers and fathers, grandparents. I was that were a part of this church, but not just a part of this church, but just loved the Lord. 
And I'm talking about grandparents on both sides of my parents. One did go here, one did not. One was not a part of this faith tradition per se, but was Christian. Believed in Jesus Christ, believed in the Bible. And so I was very blessed. And that's why that concept from generation to generation resonates with me so much. Because I'm not necessarily thinking I'm old, but I definitely don't think as I'm as young as I used to be, obviously. I know that because of that blessing, I feel a great responsibility, a stewardship to carry that on. Maybe some of our teachers that we have had growing up, teachers at church, teachers in school, college, if you happen to have went to college, pastors, preachers, people that we've heard speak from the pulpit, that have preached from the Word of God, hopefully, and only the Word of God. But we know that that's not the areas that a lot of people today go to get their wisdom. Some people might go to get their wisdom on social media. They look at a Facebook, you know, that's for us older people, right? It's all about the Snapchat and the TikTok stuff for all the younger people. They go to social media and they see some sort of meme, right, for some sort of wisdom. We know, as we've grown up in this world, and that much more now, that the world, that there's no lack of alleged or self-proclaimed wisdom. There's a lot of self-proposed wisdoms in this world. Hopefully, though, hopefully, we all believe that the source of all of our wisdom must come from this right here, the Word of God. My main point today is very simple. Seek wisdom from above and not the wisdom of this world. And I want to go to James, the third chapter. I've preached on James before. We've done a Bible study on James. But as I was thinking about this message today, Youth Day, coupled with some other things that I have thought about just this last week or so, I went to James because James talks about this idea of wisdom. And starting in James chapter 3, verse 13, James asked this question, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In this first passage, James basically gives this hypothetical question, Which among you are wise? And he qualifies what true wisdom is by saying, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. Out of all of the things that I think we can say is the key to wisdom, I would put at the top of the list, it's humility. Humility. The word that James uses here, good conduct, is a word from the Greek that means mode of life. Meaning that one's mode of life is marked by meekness, humility. You know, we can go to Proverbs and we can read a lot of different passages, a lot of different examples of what true wisdom is. And one of the famous ones that we've all went to probably many times before and even quoted is Proverbs, the first chapter, verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. 
And when I read that, and I look at what James has to say in this idea of humility, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge because that is when we realize we, in and of ourselves, can know nothing. That all knowledge has to be based upon the creator of all mankind. It all goes through him. We have to submit every thought, every single thing that we think about, every perception to none other than that of the Lord Almighty. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now I will admit, I've been a fool many times in my life. Weekly, oftentimes. We don't like to be instructed. We don't like to be corrected. It, it kind of goes against our ego, right? We want to think we have it all figured out. What's interesting, though, is when we read the biblical account, and I say that very generally because there's so many examples we could go to. When we read the biblical narrative, this from Genesis to Revelation, especially in the Old Testament, we read about different individuals who rose up and God called out to follow him. We see that the individuals that God calls out the theme is, is that when their heart is set on God's will, not on their status, not on their own agenda, but in humility, seek God and seek to point people to God, we see that they have success and blessing. When they turn away from that paradigm, we see that the consequences are devastating. We see this from godly men, even. We can look at examples of Abraham himself, Moses, David, even Solomon, the man of wisdom, right? All have these examples of starting off after God's own heart and God's ways. And they ended, of course, in a positive way. They became examples to us. But a big part of them being examples to us is when they would deviate away into their own wills and the consequences that would happen. When we go back to James in the next passage, verse 14, James contrasts this wisdom with what he calls earthly wisdom. He says in verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not ascend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And so the term used in verse 14 for envy, there's just some background I want to bring out, is actually the Greek word zelos. And we know that in the day in which James wrote his letter, there was a political or religious sect known as the zealots. And many of us have heard about this group. But the zealots... That's where, what they were. They were zealous for their goal. And that was to be revolutionaries against the Roman Empire. In their mind, they were wanting to take up arms and overthrow, force, essentially, the Jewish people's will back onto Judea and the Promised Land. And of course... James is writing this in the context of this. Largely, it's religious, but it's largely political because their goal is to go against the empire of the Romans. 
And it's not hard to see how some in James's day may have been influenced by this political sect of Judaism. And as many political factions do, they tend to stroke the ego of man and create an appetite for power and influence. The word that James uses for self-seeking, other translations use the word or the phrase selfish ambition, is the Greek word, and I'm not pronouncing this very well probably, but it's aretheia. And many believe this word is related to another Greek word, eris, that aretheia came from this other Greek word, eris, which is only used one other time outside of the New Testament that we know of. And we know that it's used by that individual that many of us have heard of before, Aristotle. He was a Greek philosopher, and he wrote many different works. One of his works was known as his take on politics. And he uses this word, and the way he uses the word is self-seeking pursuit of political power by unjust means. And so the world in which James was writing to was a world not really that much different than the world that we live in today. It's a world wrapped with all different kinds of factions, political groups, religious groups, all bent on their own agenda, all jockeying for influence and for power. Paul uses this word, eris, in 2 Corinthians, for example, chapter 12, verse 20, listing it among the vices, along with the word zealous, when he writes, for I fear lest when I come I shall find you such as I wish. I, th I shall not find you such as I wish, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and formalism. And so we live in this age today where a lot of these characteristics are displayed, unfortunately, by our common man, even our political leaders. Unfortunately, when we look at our society, it's full of what would be considered, according to the Bible, worldly wisdom. We see this demonstrated in our politics and culture, which is probably more divisive than ever. And most of us would probably agree that you cannot turn on the news for just one second today without reading some sort of headline that is entrenched in some sort of discord. And unfortunately, we've even seen this within Christian church both our own church tradition and other church traditions. Individuals standing up, not for the purpose of pointing people to God, but of course, rather to somehow gain a following and fancy themselves as some sort of chosen representative of God over and above someone else who's doing the exact same thing. The cyclical pattern that we sometimes see that's all because of a lack of that key ingredient to truly have the wisdom from above and that is humility reading I want to go back and read uh, verse 15 again verse 15 of James chapter 3 this wisdom does not descend from above but is earthly sensual and demonic now he says earthly, sensual, and demonic, that it, it descends from below. He's 
saying that this wisdom is carnal wisdom. It's wisdom based upon man's philosophy, man's ideas, man's human reasoning. It's not the wisdom from above. But one of the terms that James uses here to describe this earthly wisdom is the English word that we just read, sensual. And it's the Greek word, psychikos. Now, it's kind of an awkward Greek word because it can mean a variety of different things. It's a word that typically describes just the natural man's physical senses. You know, we have, as human beings, cognitive faculties. We have a nervous system. We hear, we smell, we can touch, we can feel. Okay, we see. We have these natural senses. I like the way that this individual by the name of David Nystrom, he wrote a commentary on James, and I just wanted to share this quote from you or to you because I like the way he describes this term. He says the term, uh, and by the way, the term, just as I mentioned, is this Greek word, psychikos. This term denoted beings possessing merely life, uh, bereft of the touch of the Spirit of God. Such persons were responsive only to natural stimuli. The false teachers had accused James of this and a lack of wisdom. Deftly, James causes this accusation to turn in their hands. He points out that the activity of the false teachers, this self-righteous name-calling, is in fact a factade that is a result of the very natural, base, and unspiritual desire for personal status and prestige. And we see that this idea, this wisdom from below, is tone-deaf the spirit of God when we do not seek the wisdom from above and we're seeking worldly wisdom we're seeking a wisdom that cannot understand the things of God that's tone deaf that relies on the sensual sensations only the physical stimuli not the spiritual stimuli that's rooted in the truth of God through Jesus Christ I would like to turn to an illustration from one of the Gospels. An illustration to see the wisdom of God displayed in our Savior, Jesus. It's found in John's Gospel. Let's go to John chapter 7 real quick. In Jesus' day, obviously, we read that he contends with all different kinds of groups. Groups that are opposing even each other. Sadducees, Pharisees, different sects of the Sanhedrin. And here in chapter uh, 7 of John's Gospel, Jesus instructs his disciples to go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But he himself would stay behind in Galilee and not immediately go with them. So when we read verse 10, he says, But when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, right here, we've probably read this passage of Scripture 
is probably pretty familiar to us. We've referenced it before. But Jesus, he goes up to the feast, and it seems to be somewhere in the middle of it. And as was a common practice, he goes into the temple, and he starts to teach. He starts to teach. There's three points of observation I want to bring out about this. Number one, his boldness and courage. Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders, by this time, as we read all throughout the Gospels, they were seeking to kill him. They wanted to arrest him and put him on trial and get rid of this individual who they thought was teaching blasphemy. Because they thought that Jesus was deceiving the people. And this was something that was, according to the Talmud, according to even the Torah to some extent, was a punishable offense by death. The second thing I want to note is the lack of formal education. Verse 15 says, how does this man know letters having never studied? That essentially means that this is an individual. He's not a part of the Pharisees. He's not a part of the Sadducees. He's never been enrolled or went through any traditional rabbinical training. He's not a part of any of the groups. He was not a follower of any kind of prominent rabbi where he could attach his name to, but yet he possessed this unbelievable knowledge of the scriptures, albeit different interpretations probably than those that were his contemporaries. As we see, they do not like what he has to say. The third thing, the third or third observation is the source or the authority in which he taught from. The Jews, when we read, many times when Jesus would teach, would be astonished because of the authority in which he spoke. During this time, it was very common for people who would get up to preach, they would cite their authority. Now, we do this too, right? Okay, we, I just quoted somebody whenever I was talking about uh, maybe a, a, an idea about a Greek word. We quote scripture and things like that. They would reference somebody or something for their authority that would somehow, in their minds, in this culture, it would attach some significance. It would bring some weight behind and justification for what was being said. But Jesus didn't do this. And that was unusual for people who would get up. All the rabbis, they would quote some famous quote from the Talmud or some famous rabbi from maybe the second century B.C. or something like that, or a lawyer or some teaching figure, and it was common. And this was one of the things that amazed the people, especially the religious leaders, and it amazed them in a negative way. This can be seen, of course, all throughout the writings of Jesus. But we know that Jesus does have a source for his authority. Reading on in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, that is my teaching, is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, God's will, that's what he's referring to, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. And so here we see that Jesus confirms the source of his wisdom, his father in heaven. Not a fancy rabbi, not some quotation from some sort of oracle that was written in the Talmud, but God his father himself. 
Now, in the minds of those who were listening to him, some of them at least, the religious leaders, this was blasphemy. This was blasphemy. And we can probably relate to them to some extent because sometimes when we get up and we, you know, <laughs> there's been many different religious leaders in our day and age, right, that claim that God has come to them and told them to do something. Uh, I think that there was a time, in a, you know, period where, uh, you know, there was a local, Oral Roberts, I think, you know, he locked himself up in the tower and said that, you know, essentially he wasn't going to come down until he raised so much money. And so there's been people who've written books that has said, I went to heaven, this is what God wanted, wants me to tell you. There's been all kinds of people who claim to speak on the authority or with the authority of God sending them to do that. And a lot of times we react, we react in the same way. We might think they're crazy. You know, if someone came to you and said, God spoke to me and he wanted me to bring this message to you, we might have some hesitations on exactly if we want to believe that individual or not. But there is a way that we can judge whether or not this is possibly authentic, and that is through the fruits. See, Jesus, he didn't just say things. He backed it up with his actions. He backed it up with the way that he treated people, his meekness, humility, the savior of all the world, someone who divested himself of his divinity, came down, became a human being, and was humble even to the point of death. He walked the talk. He walked the talk. But I want to re remind you, this verse, verse 16 and 17, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, that is God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So he was putting his own will down to follow the will of the Father, showing us the example to follow. Showing us the example to follow. So, based upon this story, I have three quick points I want to bring to us. Three quick points regarding the example that we saw right here and relating to this idea of the wisdom from above and this story that Jesus, uh, and, and this example of Jesus' encounter with these religious individuals. Number one, the world is saturated with earthly wisdom even in religious circles. We live in a world that abounds in false and earthly wisdom. We see in politics, as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, when we were talking about how divisive our world is, in academics, and of course in religion. And when I say religion, the interesting thing is we have the traditional religions, right? You got Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and those are the religions that we think about when we think about religion. But we live in an age where I think those aren't the only religions, and by far, are they even the prominent ones? Because there's things today where maybe 50, 60 years ago we wouldn't consider them religions, but now, the way they act, they are. Such as the religion of science, the religion of philosophy, the religion of humanism. We see all of them have literally become religions in our day and age, but when we study them, when we hear about what they espouse, they all reject God, 
They reject the word of God. And really, they're just mechanisms to do the same old thing earthly wisdom does. Be a mechanism for self-promotion, for selfish ambitions. In Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church, we've all read this epistle before, 1 Corinthians. He had to address some of the misconceptions of wisdom. And the early part of the epistle, he addresses this. He addresses many different topics in this epistle, but one of the things that he has to address is this faction that has taken place, these divisions within the church that occurred because of several church members in Corinth all claiming to be following different leaders. Some claim to follow Paul, some claim to follow Apollos, and I think we could argue that the issue at hand was relying not on the spiritual wisdom that comes from above, but earthly wisdom. Because the criteria, no doubt, that they were using probably to determine who to follow was probably, well, who sounds the wisest? Who seems to be the most clever? All of which are criterias of this world. They were relying on the messengers for wisdom and not God himself. They wanted to accept wisdom and knowledge like the world accepts wisdom and knowledge. What appeals to the senses? What appeals to the senses? Paul goes on, of course, to correct them. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse six, uh, 10 through 16. He says, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spear of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Verse 13, these things we also speak. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And you have to remember one of the characteristics of earthly wisdom, according to James, as we just discussed, was that sensual wisdom. That sensual wisdom, which is the Greek word that describes the natural life apart from God. That one is only sensitive to the natural stimuli. But he, verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, and we have been given a precious gift through the Holy Spirit. And we're in the middle of this Council of Pentecost that uh, commemorates that time in history where God poured his spirit out to the church. That spirit that allows us to have this understanding of the mind of the Lord, this mind of Christ. The second thing that I want to bring out, the second point, is that we must be willing to accept God's wisdom and will. We want wisdom. We have to be able to accept it. I don't think it's as easy sometimes as just saying, yes, I want wisdom and I'm going to accept what God's going to bring because sometimes 
God might bring things to you that's contrary to your natural preconceived ideas the way things should be. And in the story that we just read about today, many that came into contact uh, did not believe him. That is Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. They had preconceived ideas of what the scripture said, the way things were supposed to be, the interpretations of the scripture. They had volumes of interpretations to refer to. And someone coming and trying to contradict some of these volumes, who in the world were they? That's what was going on. They desired their traditional interpretations of the scripture and their human authority more than they desired a true understanding of God's will. And we today are not immune to this. This isn't a Jewish problem. By far is it. It happens in almost every culture and every discipline across the spectrum, even in the Christian churches. This idea here in the 21st century, it's just as difficult sometimes to accept things that go against the preconceived notions that you've always had. I work in education. There is no shortage of new things when it comes to teaching and educating. And unfortunately, there's so many that sometimes people, they don't even consider some of the new stuff because they think it's just some fad that's going to come and go and a year or two from now, it's just going to be something else, that some other buzzword that they use. Even myself, I've, I've been in education for about 12 years now, and, you know, that it's enough time to kind of settle in and think about the way you think about things. And it becomes difficult when something new comes along that's kind of in contrast to the way that maybe you've understood. A new philosophy, a new way of thinking, and sometimes the natural, you know, the natural response is like, no, that's not going to work. And sometimes it ends up being true. But really, it's sometimes me just being lucky that it's true because I'm really not giving total consideration. But possibly we live in an age where things change. I mean, this word does not change, but we do live in an age where things change, where technologies change, where society changes, where culture changes. And so sometimes if you're doing something the way you did it 50 years ago, you might become obsolete. Ask Blockbuster. Okay? There's no more <laughs> rental Blockbusters anymore, right? Everything's streaming. If you don't adapt, you die. Okay? So there is some truth to this concept of sometimes we have to consider outside of the box. Now, that doesn't mean that there's new truths or things like that, but maybe there's the always the universal truth that we just misunderstood. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day, in my opinion, is that people were set in their ways. It's a human problem that we all have to deal with. We've seen this in our own church tradition. All church traditions have. Great example is prophecy, right? You got your chart, you got it all lined up, this is the way it's going to happen. And anyone that comes along and tries to contradict that paradigm, that, that method that you've come up with, it can't be true. Because you figured it out. What do you mean Germany's not the beast? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. So this is a problem that is not, it's a human problem. And I think it goes back to humility. Acknowledging that maybe 
we're wrong about some things sometimes. The Bible's not wrong. That by no means am I saying the Bible's wrong, but we were the fallible ones. The Bible's not fallible, we are. So we are fallible human beings with the Spirit of God, we're even fallible because we still have human flesh. So when we do go to interpret this, it's possible that we can misinterpret, misapply, misappropriate. Now I'm not necessarily thinking on the, you know, there's obviously doctrines in the Bible that are very clear. Teachings in the Bible, you know, the foundational beliefs that we have. But sometimes, it, it, you know, there are things that we can maybe, especially when it comes to tradition, prophecy, the way that we do church, the format, things like that. There are ways or times that maybe we can get stuck because we're not humble enough to admit maybe we need to reconsider the way we look at this. Sometimes we must be careful with the idea of stick to your guns mentality. Stick to your guns on solid biblical truth always but there are some things sometimes that we have to be more open to now the reason I'm bringing this out is because I want us to think of it on a spiritual level maybe there's things that God's trying to teach us not so much doctrinally okay we I mean doctrine is important but I'm just talking about maybe discernment wise on decisions in life that maybe we need to Remember to humble ourselves and to pray to God to please give you the wisdom, give us the wisdom in making the right decision, even if that decision goes against maybe preconceived notions and ideas, the way that we always thought about those things. The third point I want to bring out, those who speak on their own authority glorify themselves and not God. As we read, Jesus tells us, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. We must ask the question, why do speak, people speak on their own authority? Simple. goes back to the point that we were trying to make at the very beginning, a lack of humility, which is pride. They trust in their own wisdom and knowledge wanting notoriety for themselves. I've done this before. I've thought I figured everything out. I thought, you know, I have the, you know, I, I'm smarter than someone else on, on different areas of life. Not necessarily, you know, like scripture and things like that. But there's many different walks in life that we go through where we can apply this to. Notice in Jesus' example, though, when we read this, he didn't do this. He was not saying my authority, although he had the authority because the authority was given to him by his father. But the savior of all mankind, he actually humbled himself and showed that I'm doing not my will, but my father's will. He focused on speaking the truth, not speaking on things that would make him popular that would give him notoriety, that would bring him fame. Now, he, he gained a, a, a following, of course. But he wasn't gaining a following because he was telling people what they wanted to hear. But rather, he was speaking the truth in genuineness, trying to point people to his father. Let's go to the last passage I want to go to today. 
going to skip. I was going to do 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. Let's go to the very end of James chapter 3. Let's go back there to conclude. James chapter 3, verse 17. We read what earthly wisdom looks like. Now James tells us what wisdom from above looks like in verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This right here plainly describes the very character of our Lord Jesus Christ as our Father in heaven. These characteristics. Verse 18, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And all of these exhortations about the character of the wisdom from above, Jesus Christ, our Savior, demonstrated these in everything he did. True wisdom from above is marked by humility, a desire to align our will with God's will and making our mode of life marked by being led by God's Spirit for the purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. In closing, seek this wisdom above over the earthly wisdom that this world is full of. Pseudo-wisdom. An appearance of wisdom, but not true wisdom. Temporary wisdom. Not eternal wisdom. Only that comes from above. In the very first chapter of James' letter here, he writes this in verse 5. Remember this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 